Well, please do take your copies of God's Word now and turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, as we continue um, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book and coming tantalizingly close to the end of the book after three years. But here we are this morning in Isaiah chapter 63, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Here now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Bosra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has granted us, and that the great goodness and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He said, Surely they are My people, children who will not deal falsely. And He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He turned to be their enemy and Himself fought against them. Then He remembered the days of old of Moses and His people. Where is He who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of His flock? Where is He who put, them, who put in the midst of them His Holy Spirit, who caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for Himself an everlasting name? who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we come now to this passage of Scripture, we come praying for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We do not just need more information. We do not need to hear from a man. We need God to reveal Himself to our hearts. And so we pray that Your Spirit would do that now. Come, Lord, for Your servants are listening. Amen. Well, in the first of the servant songs in Isaiah 42, right at the beginning of this evangelistic and pastoral letter that Isaiah has written to be read by the exiles. In that first servant song, we were introduced to Jesus as the one who would bring 
justice to the nations and who would not grow faint or be discouraged until he had established justice in the earth. It was the great promise intertwined into the gospel that Isaiah is preaching to the readers of his letter that a day will come when all of the evil and the wickedness within the sin-twisted world will be overturned, and in its place a new world will be established, a place where the people of God can rest easy, unthreatened by evildoers. It's a picture of Jesus, this great servant of God, come to reverse the effects of the fall and to bring salvation to bear, not just on this little remnant of Judah sitting exiled in Babylon, but a picture of Jesus coming to renew the entire cosmos, to release it from that groaning under the weight of sin that Paul speaks of in Romans 8. That first servant song gives us this grand vista of redemption. This promise that redemption does not just concern the ones and the twos, that this gospel does not just bear on a small remnant plucking them up out of this world, but rather that the redemption that Jesus brings is one that will renew the entire created order. And all of the effects of the fall ushered in with Adam's sin will be overturned and peace and harmony will be established forevermore. It's what our hearts long for. It's really the deepest desire of our hearts. All of us want a peaceful and a happy life. Right? We can legitimately argue against the Western idea of retirement as a second childhood, playing your way to the grave. But we have to admit that there is a good desire wrapped up in there. The desire to be freed from the thorns and thistles of work in this present age and simply enjoy a season of peace and rest. We can legitimately question the ambitions and, and certainly the means of the socialist utopia. But we have to admit that there is a good desire in there, to enter into an equitable society where one does not have to advance at the cost to another. Now, yes, it's disordered. Right? Your minister hasn't become a Marxist. Let me reassure you right now. History has shown it doesn't work, and, and studies have shown that, that Retirement is never quite as fulfilling as we hoped it would be, but, but it all flows from this deep longing for a, a new world. And in this first servant song, this, this new world is exactly what is promised as coming through the Redeemer. In the place of all of our disordered attempts to create heaven on earth, the promise is that Jesus will actually do it. And He will do it because He is able to do what we cannot do, namely, He is able to destroy sin. That fundamentally is what makes this present world so restless. Work is good, established by God before the fall, but, 
we have to admit it is now disordered. It has those thorns and thistles, so you are getting along great. You're in the office early, and you're, you're, you're going through your inbox, and you're banging out the emails, and it's going great, and then, and then in comes your co-worker, and he has had a knockdown, drag-out fight with his wife before he left, and he's in a sour mood, and he throws a file down on your desk with a cutting remark, and you're not getting along so great anymore, right? Retirement is good, but it's, it's never the peaceful harmony that we'd hoped for, never that second childhood that we'd been sold. And in sin's disorder, our peace is disturbed by that gripping reality that, that we just can't go back. Aging is a real thing, and the past is a foreign country. Or maybe more seriously, we're getting along great, work is good, marriage is happy, children are healthy. And then a natural disaster comes. A hurricane sweeps across your island, a tree's in your house, and suddenly your entire life has been turned on its head. And even if none of those things happen, you know that they're never far away. And so there's always a restlessness. But in that first servant song, the promise came that Jesus would usher in that world that we long for. And here, as Isaiah is now drawing his book to a close, he's now wrapping up his letter. He's circling back to pick up those themes that he began the letter with, and, and he's filling them out for his readers. And as we've said over the past couple of weeks, he does this for a distinct pastoral reason. The knowledge of that coming world changes how we relate to this present world. Right? You remember last week, I, I dared a sports analogy, which is always dangerous for a preacher, especially one who's not that into sports. But no one said anything, so I think I got away with it. It's the difference between watching a baseball game when you know the final score and when you don't. Right? When you don't, you're, you're left in a world of uncertainty. Glad when your team is winning, but anxious that they're going to slip up. Nervous when they get behind and unsure if they will regain the lead. But when you know that final score, you watch that game with a different perspective, especially when your team's behind. Right? Your anxiety is now turned into this excited anticipation, just watching and waiting to see how the victory will be accomplished. Right? That's the perspective that Isaiah wants his readers to have as they come out of this letter, an eager excitement that even though things are hard in this present world, an eager excitement to see how this world of peace and righteousness will be ushered in by Christ our Redeemer. And here Isaiah is continuing on in that same vein. Last week, he painted for us a beautiful picture of that coming, remember he called it the year of the Lord's favor, that great year of jubilee, when we will be brought in to, to rest and rejoice in God and His manifold blessings. But now, he comes and he looks at it from a different angle. And as you notice as we read, he, he, he comes and approaches it from a darker angle. And he focuses in now to show us 
Christ's work in defeating evil so that justice could be brought to the ends of the earth. Isaiah writes as if he's a a watchman standing on the walls of Jerusalem. And And he writes as if he's looking out, surveying the the horizon. And he sees someone coming, a lone rider coming over the horizon. And he doesn't know who it is at, at, at first. And so he calls out to him, who is, who is it coming, marching in the greatness of your strength? And, and the reply came, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. He can't see who it is, but he calls out and he knows it's this warrior. And he knows that he's clothed in in splendid apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And he knows which direction he's coming from. He knows that he's coming from Edom, and he knows that he's coming from specifically Bosra, the capital city of Edom. Now, that might not mean much to us, but But we have to realize that Edom is one of those places in the Old Testament that is symbolic for the world in rebellion against God. Edom was a long-standing enemy of God and His people. They were descended from Esau, who, you remember, hated his brother Jacob, who became Israel. Listen to how Alec Mortier describes it. He says, even though Esau himself had no capacity for sustained animosity, right? Do you remember in Genesis 33 how the brothers seemed to be reconciled? Alec Mortier says, it was with him that relations with Jacob were soured. And by the time of Numbers 20, hostility had become an established pattern. Saul made war on Edom. David became the only king to subdue and annex Edom. Edom rebelled against Solomon and was still rebelling a century later. Fifty years on, in 2 Kings 14, there was still fighting. And at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, the bitter hostility of Edom had become notorious, as we see in Psalm 137 and Obadiah 10. Two factors make Edom specifically fit to stand as a motif for the whole world in the final judgment. First, its ceaseless hostility to the Lord's people, and secondly, the fact that it was only to David that it was ever really succumbed. So have that in your mind. Here is this this warrior, this lone rider that that Isaiah sees coming, and he knows he's coming from the direction of of Edom and, and Bosra. And he's coming having secured victory over Edom and over Bosra. It's a powerful and a a vivid image, isn't it? An image that's almost gruesome in its detail. We've seen enough movies to picture this scene. We can put ourselves on the ramparts with Isaiah. Here comes this warrior, and as he gets closer, you see he's, he's clothed splendidly, but what you thought was red clothing isn't. It's clothing that has been stained by the blood of those he's defeated. Here comes this this valiant 
warrior who is returning from a battle in which he has taken on all comers and he has left them slain on the battlefield. It's, it's Shakespearean in its imagery, isn't it? Or rather, Shakespeare's Isanic in his imagery. Right? Without an, or, an army, this, this warrior has trampled on the forces of evil in his wrath. He has taken them on and he has trampled them down in his righteous anger. It's Jesus. Right? Reading this in the wake of the servant songs, here is this singular Messiah, the singular Redeemer King appearing again. But, but this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is not Jesus gentle and lowly. This is Jesus mighty and fierce. This is the Jesus of Revelation 1. How did John see Jesus? John, who'd been with Jesus, who'd seen him day out, day in, day out, who'd seen him transfigured. John, who'd been with Jesus, the only disciple left to witness him on his cross. John, who'd seen him after the resurrection. When John sees Jesus in Revelation 1, what does he do? He falls at his feet as if he's dead. Why does he do that? Because the Jesus in Revelation 1 is terrifying. And his eyes, John says, like flaming fire. He has a voice that's like, like roaring waters, right? Not a, not a babbling brook, like the thundering, deafening roar of Niagara Falls, an authoritative, booming voice that comes out of King Jesus. And John says his tongue, it's like a two-edged sword. That's who Isaiah sees. It's the Jesus of Revelation 19. Remember what John says there? He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood." And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine living, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them, Psalm 2, with a rod of iron, shattering them like a clay vessel. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Where did, where did that image come from? It came from Isaiah 63. It's the same imagery, isn't it, that John uses, that Isaiah is using Babylon in Revelation, standing just like Edom does here, emblematic of the forces of evil. And here is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, having triumphed over them, His robe drenched in their blood as He has tread them like a treader treads the winepress. 
And I wonder what you think about these images. It's, it's not how we often think of Jesus. It's certainly not the stained glass window picture of Jesus. Maybe you think it's an unworthy description of Jesus. We like to think of Jesus as that gentle shepherd bearing his little lambs on his shoulders. We like to think of Jesus as the welcomer of children sitting and taking little ones up on his lap. A safe Jesus. But you understand, this aspect of Jesus is essential if we are to honor Him, if we are to worship Him, if we are to trust and obey Him. Right, do you remember how, how Paul describes it in Colossians 2.15? Right? You know this passage well. You've memorized it long ago. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You hear how how Paul intertwines these two crucial aspects of the cross. There's a reason why he doesn't end at the end of verse 14. Right, what did Jesus do on the cross? On the one hand, he satisfied the demands of the law against your sin. He satisfied the justice of God against your sin. He so drank down the dregs of God's wrath as it stood against you in your sin that there is none left for you to take. So, gloriously, are your trespasses forgiven and the record of your debt canceled? It's glorious. Memorize it. Inscribe it on the tablets of your heart. Sinner, if you have faith in Christ, then the promise of the gospel is that your sin has been removed from you. What did the psalmist say? As far as the east is from the west. As soon as somebody can find the East Pole and the West Pole, then maybe we can revisit this imagery. But as long as it is, it is unfindable, the psalmist says, so is your sin, Christian, in Christ. What's the promise of the new covenant? God has said that He will forget your sin and remember it no more. That is a literally mind-blowing promise. How can the perfect divine mind forget anything? I don't know, but he says it is forgotten. So that there is no chance, Christian, that on the day when you get to heaven, there is no chance that an angelic administrator will find a charge against you buried in the bottom of the file. It's empty. There are no charges because Jesus paid it all gloriously. But Paul doesn't end with the end of verse 14, does he? he? He intertwines it with this other aspect that in his atoning death, Christ bloodied the forces of evil and, and even struck the death blow to the devil so that it could be said in Jesus' resurrection that Jesus has already triumphed over him in his atoning work. It's remarkable the titles that the New Testament gives to the devil. In Ephesians 2.22, 
Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In Ephesians 6, 12, he's called the cosmic power over this present darkness. But maybe more shockingly, in John's gospel, three times, Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. Now, it's not that he is an equal and opposite force to God, God being the righteous heavenly being and the devil being the earthly wicked being. But it is to communicate just how devastating the fall was. The whole world taken captive by evil so that it could be said that the devil is the ruler of this present world. That's why Israel's captivity in Egypt is such a perfect metaphor for our condition in sin. We are held captive by the forces of evil, not just him running around this world in mischief, not just making trouble here and there, but, but, but the devil taking captive this world so that our wills are constrained by sin, our captivity so total, so twisted even, that we become consumed by a kind of spiritual Stockholm syndrome, which we don't hate this devil, but we even grow to love him and gladly follow his wicked schemes, yielding to the passions and desires of the flesh, going the way of Moab and Babylon in their rebellion against God, and even, as the prophets would say, calling evil good. But here's the promise that our Lord will so totally defeat these forces of evil that they will just be left slain on the battlefield. In the last analysis, this ruler of this present world will be dethroned, and he will be slaughtered by King Jesus. The image of Basra being that he doesn't just come and, and defeat evil. He goes very right into the capital city of evil, as if he storms the palace of the devil and goes in and rips him down from his throne and slits his throat. The devil may be the ruler of this world, but Isaiah is saying that there is a far greater ruler before whom he must fall. What our Lord did at the cross, dealing that death blow to the devil, that fatal strike in fulfillment of God's ancient promise that a son of the woman would bruise the head of the servant, Isaiah is drawing us in to see will be on that last day on that year of the Lord's favor, when all of these glorious things spoken of Christ will be brought to their fulfillment, when we are brought into that new Jerusalem, that new heavenly world. What Isaiah is saying is that on that day, there simply will be no more evil to contend with. It just won't exist anymore. There will be no more unrighteousness on the earth. The people of God freed from not even a, a shadow of evil, to rest wholly secure in the victory of our King. Right, that's the image, isn't it? Isaiah standing on the ramparts of Jerusalem. As we said, Jerusalem is a metaphor in Scripture for the church. 
And here is, here is the church standing, and here comes King Jesus, and the church is wholly assured that now no one is left who could harm them. It's the reason why the gates of the New Jerusalem that John will see later on in his revelation just stand open. But why did these ancient cities have these great gates to defend them against evildoers? To close them at, at night to stop the raiders coming in? Right, what's Psalm 130? My, my soul waits for the Lord, even as the watchmen wait for the dawn. Right? You know that, that imagery, that the watchmen, they stand at night just anxiously waiting for the dawn to break because night is a world of evil. It's a night that the raiders will come. It's a night that the, the siegers will come and attack the city. Those great doors locked to try and keep them out until the dawn breaks when they can be opened. But what is it John says in Revelation? There's no night in the new world. There, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no reason for the doors ever to be shut again. They just stand open because all of the forces of evil, they aren't just sent to the hills. They aren't just hiding in the bushes. They have been absolutely done away with. A glorious picture of the victory of our Lord. But what of the second part of our passage? Isaiah follows up this powerful image of Christ the conquering King coming into His church victorious over evil, and he follows it with this what I think we can only describe as a psalm of praise to God. At first blush, it, it looks like a change of subject. I said before, watch out for those little editorial headings. They can, they can knock you off, and it, and it can look like here that this is just a change of subject. But Isaiah goes from this, this meditation on Christ's strength and power to the song of praise. And, and what does he do in the song? He just rehearses redemptive history like so many of the Psalms do. Right, look at these verses again. What's he talking about? He's talking about how God has dealt with His people from the exodus to the exile. And what is the repeating theme of redemptive history? What is the repeating theme of God's dealing with His people? Steadfast love. Compassion, fidelity, patience. It's extraordinary how God's love for His people is presented here, isn't it? So that even when they were afflicted because of their own sin, even when they grieved the Holy Spirit, and God Himself became for a season their enemy, bringing upon them grievous consequences for their sin, the exile, it was born, verse 9, in a sorrow over their sins, so that like a father administering discipline, God Himself was afflicted in their affliction. Bound to them, verse 11, by way of covenant, not even their rebellion and sin would cause His heart to let them go. Even in and through the exile, He was holding them fast, even while He appeared to be their enemy. In the last word, verse 14 that in all of history, God has led His people to make a glorious name for Himself, so that in all of history, the people of God exalt the Lord and delight in His mercy and grace to them. But what's the connection? How does this go with this apocalyptic vision He's just given us? Well, it's simply that when faced with such a mighty and powerful King, 
we must remember that the power of this king is now always for us and not against us. This is a terrifying vision of Christ. And some need to be terrified with it. Right? All you have a light view of sin. This is the king before whom you will stand one day. The vanquisher of Israel. The establisher of justice and righteousness. Some of you need to fall like John before his feet as if dead, repenting of your sin and entrusting himself, yourself to his mercy. Right? And if that's you, listen. The assurance of the gospel is that you will receive that mercy. Right? What is it that Peter wrote? That the Lord is not now slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but that he is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Peter says, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The Lord, but the Lord tarries. And he delays that day that you might be saved. So if you are here this morning and you have a light view of sin, see the terrifying Jesus and run to him as long as he gives you time to run to him and cast yourself on his mercy. But for those of us who have done so, Isaiah now comes and he gives us this psalm and he writes this so that we can be assured that this mighty king is always for us and never against us. Right? It had to be a thought, didn't it, in the minds of the exiles after all that they had done. Could they really be united to such an almighty Redeemer? Right? Maybe you think the same thing as you read this this morning. You, you know what you've done. You know your sin. You know your willful sin. You know your stubborn sin. You know your pet sins that you are reluctant to wholly give up. You know how you have wandered away from the God you love. Will this mighty king who so hates evil really deal kindly with you? As I says to us, dear Christian, look at the sweep of redemptive history and see his character. For those who are in covenant with him, with him for those whose trust is in Christ, then there is a sustained mercy, <clears throat> a grace so rich and deep that He only looks upon you with a heart of compassion in your sin. He is Himself afflicted in your afflictions. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin put it in a way that, that we might be reluctant to do, <clears throat> but in a way that I think is wholly accurate. He says, dear Christian, your sins move Christ more to pity than to anger. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall fall, and that only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his bowels, his heart, we would say, 
shall be the more drawn out to you, and this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore fear not what shall separate us from Christ's love. That's what Isaiah wants us to see. Jesus is angry against sin. His wrath is, is, is unleashed against sin. He will put evil to death. But, but Isaiah wants to reassure us that if we are united to this king in faith, he will not turn against us. That our sin, our failings do not turn him against us, but all the more just fuels his righteous anger against the devil and all that he stands for all the more compels him in the battle to free us from it completely. It's the words of the first servant song. The reassurance that while this mighty king crushes his enemy, he will not break a bruised reed. He will not extinguish a faintly burning wick. It's a glorious picture that Isaiah gives us. This picture of Jesus as powerful yet tender. So Christian, behold your King. See His glory, feel His love, and return to Him the praise and honor that He alone is due. Let us pray. Almighty God, how we rejoice in our Lord Jesus. He is more magnificent than we could ever comprehend. But we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that bit by bit he enables us to apprehend the glory of Christ more and more. Oh, Father, give us a big view of him that we might entrust ourselves wholly to him. Lord, give us hearts after his own heart, hearts that hate sin as he hates it, hearts that flee from it, and hearts that pray for His return, for that day when evil will be wholly vanquished. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.